hate you both. I've hated you ever since I can remember. I hate you, and I wish you both had cancer. Cancer? Yes, in the head. <gasps> I'm as bad as hell, and I'm not going to take this anymore! Pay no attention to that man behind the curtain! Are you telling me you built a time machine? Out of a DeLorean? This is the Stupid Answer Uh-oh. Sounds like somebody's got a case of the Mondays. <laughs> <laughs> People seem to like me because I am polite and I'm rarely late. Don't worry, I got an idea. And now, the host of the Stupid Cancer Show, Matthew Sack. Not that there's anything wrong with him. Because he has a lot of chits, but. <laughs> oh, right. Hello and welcome to episode 385 of the Stupid Cancer Show, the voice of Young Adult Cancer. I'm your host, Matthew Zachary, a proud 20-year Young Adult Brain Cancer Survivor, coming to you right now from the Chemo Deck, our fabulous studio in downtown Manhattan. Broadcasting since 2007, the Stupid Cancer Show is a production of Stupid Cancer, the largest charity comprehensively addressing Young Adult Cancer worldwide, online at stupidcancer.org. I'm Mallory Rivera, program manager and co-producer of The Stupid Cancer Show, welcoming all of our first-time and returning listeners. Never miss an episode by subscribing to the podcast on iTunes and following us on SoundCloud. It is not okay that 72,000 young adults are diagnosed with cancer each and every year. So, got cancer under 40? Sucks, huh? Time to get busy living, folks, because the Stupid Cancer Show is changing the world one chemo infusion at a time. We got a special show for you tonight. We are highlighting the documentary film Until 20, a powerful new film that tells the inspirational story, true story, of Texas native James Arthur Raglan, who lost his life to osteosarcoma in 2014 as a teenager. Joining us are award-winning journalists and documentary filmmakers Geraldine Mariba and Jamila Paksima to talk about the film and its impact. So our spotlight on Israeli singer-songwriter and young adult cancer survivor Noah Bentor. All right. Hello, Mal. Hello. How are you? I'm just dandy. It's your first official Kennyless podcast. It is. It's happening. It is happening. It is happening. Welcome to the party. I'm here. You're on the mic. You got the mic. You're in I, the seat. I'm the chair, in the seat and with you got the mic. Three computers and a mic, and it's it's all happening. It's all the things, as you say. All the things. Well, we got a great show coming up, so let's get our uh, our first guest right on the air. Yes. All right, in our spotlight, Noah Bentor was working on her second album when she was diagnosed with stage 3 breast cancer at the age of 31. Soon after she finished treatments, the cancer came back. Of all the luck. Then she uh, quickly wrote and recorded a new album, which we all do, with songs that capture the pain, struggle, and questions of life and love. Please welcome, from Israel, Noah Bentor. Hello, Noah. Hi. How are you? Thank you for joining us. It's uh, it's always a, a a pleasure to welcome the niche market of young adult musician survivors to the Stupid Cancer Show. 
Mm, I'm happy to be here. <laughs> Thank you. Yeah, and you're you're calling in from Israel. Yes. Officially proving the internationality of our show. Finally, after nine years. <laughs> yes, yeah. at two seventeen a.m. Yes, you're very brave. You're very brave. <laughs> Um, I, I, I don't know if you know this about me, but I was also diagnosed and wrote music. I was a concert pianist diagnosed with cancer 20 years ago, and I wrote music because of it. We have a, a kinship going on here in Mishpacha, if you would, going on yeah. here. That I, I take a lot of pride um, knowing that there are so many other people out there willing to share so much of their soul through art and music going through this. this uh, we call it crapness. It's a very crass way of saying it here in the States. Yeah, Definitely. Um, I really believe, I mean, my story is a bit, you know, it goes through my first cancer, my second cancer, then my, you know, the different albums, but the, the new album, I really felt that it kind of saved my life and kept me going during the treatments of the second time the cancer came back. So I should probably ask the obvious question. You were a singer songwriter before you were diagnosed as well. Yes, yes. My first album actually came out in 2005 in New York. I was living in New York. My second album came while, I mean, I I was diagnosed with cancer while I was working on my second album and decided to keep, like, going with the dates of its uh, coming out and everything, doing treatments. Like, I finished it between, like, chemo and the surgery, and then I had shows between the surgery and the radiation. But after that, everything just became really, really hard. Like, I just my body was just so uh, beaten up, and I just had to put everything aside. And my music, I don't think I touched my guitar for, like, two years. Wow. Um, like literally I didn't write anything. People kept asking me, how come you're not writing after what you've been through? Um, but then just as I started writing and like feeling better, it was like the end of 2013. Um, I started writing again. I was feeling great. I just, everything was going really well in my life and I had, um, my MRI and we found out that my breast cancer came back. Um, and at that point, I was like, well, you know, so many questions. I wasn't even sure I had the strength to go with all the treatments again. I had to do everything over. But I also had to decide, am I again putting my music aside and just doing, you know, my treatments and fighting for my life or am I going to keep writing like new songs and record and I decided to do that and then my this new album came out with all songs that were written during the treatments and I just love them so much I feel that they literally saved my life. So, Noah, if I can, let's go back. Yes. We like people to tell their stories in the sense of, you know, you were a young woman getting breast cancer. It's very rare, but it yeah. happens and it sucks. Were you in Israel at the time and how were you diagnosed originally? Yeah, I was in Israel at the time. Um, I just, the whole, I, I don't know, I felt something was wrong with my body. Um, I did not feel well the whole year before I was diagnosed, diagnosed. And I did all these like different like checkups. And I went to just a um, surgical uh, doctor, 
um, to check out my breast. And he basically said, I mean, he did see something. He sent me to an ultrasound. But when I came back to him with the ultrasound, he said, mm, I see something, but you're young. It's probably nothing. Famous last and words. just sent me home, like without doing, you know, the biopsy or the MRI or like additional uh, checks. Um, so it was a really big, um, I know you say it in English, like uh, a really uh, like not, <laughs> not cool on his behalf. I don't know how to say it otherwise, but he just sent me home and said, ah, you're young. It's probably nothing. Right. And only like four months later, it was the tumor was so big that I literally saw it on my skin, on my breast. And it was like a tiny second that I saw it and I immediately knew that it's breast cancer. So you were uh, in the States where you said that's a totally shitty situation, basically. Yeah. The doctor kind of threw <laughs> yeah. you under the bus and said you're too young for this. And, you know, that's it. It, it happens. It's unfortunate. We're very angry about it. We're doing our best to make sure it doesn't happen yeah. again. But you seem to be inherently proactive. And, you know, you don't sort of take shit from anybody. You want answers. And you finally got a response. Yeah. Yeah. Um, yeah, so then I immediately, you know, went to do the biopsy and PET-CT and MRI and started treatments. Um, and I think the first, like in my, I, the first cancer, I was very like, okay, I'm just going to do exactly what they tell me. Very, I was very trusting of the doctors. And I was just like, I'm going to do everything they tell me. And I was very sure everything's going to be fine. But when it came back, it was like less than a year after I finished treatments. At that point, I think I was the first time I felt how much the doctors don't really know things. They don't know why it came back. Um, they didn't really have a lot of cases of, of breast cancer that reoccurs, um, but is not metastatic. It's still small. Um, so they would literally, like the best, best doctor in, is in Israel would sit in front of me and be like, yeah, we don't really know. And we don't really know what protocol of treatments to give you. And I think at that point I was like, okay, I need to maybe take more control of what, what I'm doing or not doing. But at the same time, I was like also suddenly, you know, when he comes back, you're not that sure suddenly I wasn't that sure that I'm going to be healthy. Um, so I think the fears that are now surrounding me, they're, they're really, really, they're huge. Like after you had cancer twice, you're just like, well, why wouldn't it come back again? Well, recurrence is the number one reason for anxiety and stress, obviously. Yes. But yes. That, there's like a clinical science around that that we study very closely here in the States. And yeah. yet, you know, here you are just finishing up your treatment and bam, it hits again. Was it a, a basic recurrence or was it a, a new cancer or had it, it? No, it was exactly the same type and exactly, exactly the same place. Uh, it was, I think it was a miracle that they saw it in the MRI because it was under the um, like scar of my last um, surgery. 
So it was like really a tiny chance to even see it. And it was less than a centimeter when it came back. But it was at the same spot and the same type of breast cancer, the hormonal and biological type, um, triple positive. So, yeah, <laughs> that, like... The fears is something I talk a lot on my uh, the lecture that I give. I have a lecture that's called Unslash Lucky Cancer. Um, I, it's just something that is sometimes some days it's so strong that I I can barely do anything. Well, you you gave us a song. We'd love to play it on the air. Yeah. Uh, why don't you tell us about it? Love and Darkness. Well, the that's album, the name of my album, the, album, yes. the new, the third album. Um, I don't know. <laughs> um, this album, this album in in general is a pretty heavy and and dark uh, album. It's not an easy album to to hear. It's, there's a lot of tough, sad songs, but I always leave a tiny bit of like optimism in each of the songs. Um, so, yeah. which, which one would you like us to play? The the, the title song, Love and Darkness? Um, well, I, yeah, I mean, I, maybe the first song, Blue Skies. Sure, we can the, play Blue Skies. Blue Skies, I think, I mean, I love that song, but Blue Skies was literally the low, was written at the my lowest, lowest, lowest point um, during the year of the second treatment. And I remember just like resting my head on the guitar and this song just—I mean—it was really a really rough time, and this song just came out. Um, yeah, so it's blue skies. So here it is, blue skies from Love and Darkness by Noah Bentor.
We are talking with Noah Bentor, young adult survivor of breast cancer, musician, singer-songwriter from Israel. Uh, what are you doing these days besides music? Is it your truly your anchor? Are you teaching? What, what What's your day job? Or, or... Uh, well, yeah, I started a day job just like a few months ago. I have to say that um, you know during the last few years, I was like on social security. And it basically allowed me to be just, you know, beside going to treatments and stuff, but allowed me to just be a musician. And that was kind of fun. Um, but a few months ago, I was like, yeah, I need to um, go back to my life and, you know, knock on wood, I'm healthy. Um, I just started a new um, a new day job at the International Center at the Technion here. It's like the Israeli MIT. So I'm working with like international students and doing all kinds of like the social activities and lectures and cool stuff with them. Well, we really like uh, happy ending stories. It's really wonderful to bring uh, even more international phenomenons to the young adult cancer world. Where can people learn more about your music and your work? Um, just like a lot of, um, like just right now, a mentor on YouTube, Facebook, um, I'm there. <laughs> Well, thank you for joining us. I look thank forward you to meeting so you when, when you're back in New York. Drinks on me. Yeah, sounds perfect. All right. no, Noah <laughs> thank ben you. Yes, Noah Bento, everyone. Thank you very much. Thank you. All right, Mal. And now, the news. Hello, I'm Kent Brockman, and this is Eye on Cancer. Just the facts, ma'am. Head on over to events.stupidcancer.com .org. That's events.stupidcancer.org. Sign up for meetup alerts and never miss a meetup again. If you'd like to learn more about hosting your own Stupid Cancer Meetup, visit stupidcancermeetup.org. Uh, We're good. We're good. No one should face cancer alone because isolation sucks. Download Instapeer for iPhone, iPad, and Android. Create your account and instantly start chatting with someone just like you who's been there and walked in your shoes. Join our online community of thousands of cancer patients and survivors and caregivers from all over the world right now on your phone, Instapeer. We've launched a newsfeed aggregator on Tumblr for all the articles, blogs, and stories we couldn't possibly have time to post on social media. Check out what we're reading 24-7 and don't miss a beat. Subscribe at stupidcancer.org slash feed. If you've not yet checked out the Stupid Cancer Community Forums, you're missing out. Join thousands of your peers in a safe and meaningful online environment to get connected, swap stories, learn from one another, and foster the young adult cancer conversation. With hundreds of topics, discussion groups, and issues to choose from, 
It's a great place to get busy living. Learn more online at stupidcancer.org slash community. Support our programs and services by heading over to stupidcancerstore.org. You'll feel great and look great in your new Stupid Cancer gear. That's stupidcancerstore.org. Be proud. Wear Stupid Cancer. And that is your Stupid Cancer News. In our main segment here, we're welcoming Geraldine Mariba. She is a five-time, only five-time Emmy award-winning journalist and documentary filmmaker. She's currently an executive producer of CNN's original program development team and the vice president of diversity and inclusion for CNN Worldwide. Prior to that, she served as the executive producer of the highly acclaimed CNN documentary series in America. She's also worked at NBC News, MSNBC, ABC News, and CBC Radio. Joining her is Jamila Paxima, two-time Emmy award-winning and independent documentary filmmaker, video director and journalist. Some of her awards include three prestigious Webby Awards, an RFK Journalism First Prize in Domestic Television Broadcast, the CINE Golden Eagle, and the OMMA Awards for Best Medical Animation Series. That's a hell of an amazing resume. Please welcome Jamila Paxima and Geraldine Marilla. Wow. Thank you. Thank you. I should get some kind of Emmy for reading that. That, that was impressive. <laughs> I, I love the delivery. I am highly caffeinated, so it helps with the articulation. <laughs> it's very good. Uh, I'm, I'm thrilled to have you guys on the show. I know we've been talking about the film for a while, and it, it, we, we, again, I think the theme of this show, not that we thematize shows, art, survivorship, film, music, it's such a way to really get such an emotional point out about human life and stories and humanity and narratives, and uh, your project really hits home. Thank you. It's uh, good to be here. Yeah, I mean, like I said, it, it's we love in-studio guests, by the way. Uh, Camille, Geraldine's right here. I'm staring at her. We love warm bodies here in the studio. It's a good thing to have. Why don't you both each get started with uh, what attracted you um, to this particular project? And until 20 is the documentary we'll be discussing. Uh, should I start, Jamie? Go for it. So I am a cancer survivor myself, and I'll give you the short version. Basically what happened, I was getting treatment in Texas at MD Anderson in Houston, and my um, annual checkups occur once a year. And I happened to have a mutual friend with a young man who's in the film who said I really needed to meet him, find out what his story was, and, and do a story about him. And over time... Um, I read up on him. We had a first conversation, and I pulled Jamila in immediately because I realized this was something that was too big for me to do on my own. But there was absolutely a really valuable story here, and that's how it started. And the person in the film, uh, James Reagan, has had uh, sarcoma cancer, which is uh, soft tissue cancer. His was inside his bone. Um, I had the same cancer. We had some of the same doctors. So we had a lot in common that wow. we didn't know about un until that point. Yeah, he was diagnosed at 13 with osteosarcoma, the bone. Right. Just for what it's worth, my brother-in-law was diagnosed with the same thing at 13. Oh, wow. Yeah. And he, did he, he also, survive? No, he passed away uh, oh. at 19 years old. Oh, I'm sorry. Well, it's it's part of why we do what we do, right? Right. Yeah. So, exactly. So, uh, Jamila, you're up. Better up. Oh, well, you know... I'll tell you, Geraldine and I um, go back a, a long ways. I won't tell you how many years, but we shared an office at NBC Dateline way back. And we've never done a project together, but we've always we've been best friends since we um, started working together. And when she came to me, 
and asked me if our, our team and our production company based out of Philadelphia would be interested in doing this with her. I was like, sure, let me, let me have a call with James. Let, and then we went and met him and his family. And I just have never met such open, generous people who were really uh, devoted to the cause and really selfless, wanted to tell an honest story, um, but also uh, a story about how to live with dealing with cancer in such an open and honest way. And um, so I, I was in just from the moment I met them. I myself am a mother. I have a 11 year old boy at the time. And, and I just was in this mother's shoes going, what would I do if this happened to my son? And that's why I was in. And it, it's truly humbling. We, there, there's, um, I would say a, a short commodity of, of really powerful documentaries that really tell the story in the way that you guys are doing. I was reading um, James's obituary, mm. which is online. He was like the mayor of MD Anderson as a teenager. Yeah. He was involved with all the ambassador programs. He started his own sarcoma initiative. Tell me more about meeting him and learning from him. You know, the thing about James is um, it's hard to believe, but he faced death with optimism. And and we shot with him repeatedly. We flew down to Corpus Christi. By the way, he might as well be the mayor of Corpus Christi, Texas as well. <laughs> but we, we flew down there repeatedly, and I never saw James cry. I never saw him feel down. And I'm not saying that he never, ever was, but he really did a good job of staying focused and positive. And his mantra, his his approach to life was he wanted to do a good thing every day. And that consumed him. He really went out of his way to do small acts and large acts and um, and sometimes anonymously. He wasn't in it for the praise or the feedback. He did it because it made him feel good. And it also made his life feel more valuable and worthwhile. So he did pass away at 20. I would imagine that's part of why the film is called Until, Until 20. 20. What was the basis for wanting to harness this through a film? You know, he we wanted to spend the the last year of his life with him, but it was not to be a film about how to spend the you know how to spend the last year of your life. It was about how to live, knowing that you may die, but how do you live and try to uh, leave a legacy and try to do something and and make a huge difference in pediatric cancer and uh, and cancer. Um, p particularly for sarcoma, which is something that he really cares about. And so um, that that was the, our initial goal, was to raise awareness through the film, but not do it in a very manipulative or sappy way. And, he, and, he's, and he's such a positive guy. I mean, I kept saying to Geraldine, I have met, he's like relentlessly positive. It just almost seemed impossible at, at times. But it truly was who he was. I used to say and to Jamila, he, oh my God, he, this doesn't seem real. Like, yeah. I don't get it. And, and it wasn't just for young people. It was for people with cancer of every age or any disease. And, um, and in the beginning, you know, you start telling people you're working on this film and they're like, oh, it's going to be a film about bucket lists or I want to do this or, you know, we don't want... And I don't want to knock other films that are out there about, you know, living out an adventure or that kind of thing. 
but James's adventure was living. That's what he wanted to do and do well. He he chose to stay enrolled in Rice University through all of his treatments. He was enrolled until the last month of his life. His his goal was to have great relationships with people and to enjoy people. It wasn't about accomplishing and ticking off bucket lists. He did have he has a huge passion for playing golf, which came um, as a second sort of sports career to him. Initially, he was a, a tennis player when he was diagnosed with osteosarcoma, and then he had a resectioning done, and so he wasn't he wasn't able to play tennis anymore, and he was looking for a new sport. Well, he became a Division One golfer, and he was uh, really rigorous about his his um, golf and improving, and no matter how crappy he felt. He was out there playing golf. He was getting his chemo treatments in the middle of games, like playing as he was playing, he was getting chemo dripped really in did. him because he didn't want to miss the game. James showed up in life and had no excuses. And I've just never met anybody like that. I've never met anybody of his age like that who never felt pity for themselves, just kept going forward and smiling. What strikes me about your how you describe uh, conceiving and, and putting the film project together is that you didn't want it to be a St. Jude Dying Pets commercial. No. Which is pretty much what a lot of the teen and pediatric stuff winds up being. You know, it, this was done in such a way with humility and grace. And I'm getting, like, just chills and verklempt channeling my late brother-in-law because this was his story, too. He was the mayor of NYU. He volunteered for everything. He sat on the boards of the, of, of the junior cancer wards. He help set up the Xboxes and the kids cancer centers mm-hmm. for like for six years. He was that kid. Uh, the the similarities are striking, I guess, uh, without making this all about me. Do you feel like just being that young inherently predisposes you to this innocence of invincibility? Dis- despite th- mortality facing you. Yeah. I don't think James felt invincible. He he was grounded and realistic. He knew that his days were limited. And in fact, the way he described it was he said he was kicking a can down the street and he just kept kicking it and kicking it as far as he could until he couldn't kick it anymore. I mean, when we met James, he had multiple uh, tumors growing in his lungs. Um, you know, he, he said it felt like wood scraping against his lungs. So he, he, he when he breathed, he could feel pain every breath. So he was very realistic about his condition and and the odds against him, um, but it didn't. He didn't give up hope, and and I think that's what really shaped his character. He also felt like he had to make a difference while he was here. So it wasn't so much that um, he felt invincible. He he knew he wasn't. I think the pain was too real for him to think otherwise. Very fair, Jamila. You want to weigh in on that? Sure. You know, I think probably early on when he was a bit younger at 13, 14, I think back then he did feel a little bit invincible. Like, And he made some big declarations like pediatric cancer is going to end with me. And, and he really wanted to believe that. And I do think that in his, it, as part of his legacy and what he's done, I mean, how many people do a fundraiser for pediatric cancer? That is a toga party. I mean, yeah. he, you see the people that come out and get dressed up in these sheets, they say <laughs> spectacular, let me tell you. Yeah. Um, and this year they had their 10th year anniversary of this toga party and they raised so much money every year. 
And this has become, you know, a huge stamp for what he does. Um, but there's there's joy in fighting back, and I think he really has found a way to do that and make it a, a different mark. So, um, you know, I there I wish he could be invincible, and I would always say to Geraldine, I, I once in a while we'd come back from shoots and I go, I had a dream. He's never going to die. I'm telling you, he is ne- not right. going to die because there's something about him. Yeah. There's going to be a cure. There's going to be something because I believed he was invincible. He yeah. did it, but he would make you feel that way. It was impossible to conceive the impossible. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. I, it's yeah. funny. I still feel like he's he's with us. Mm-hmm. I, I think of him all all the time. He really has influenced my own life and the way I live um, and helps with perspective. And I'm a cancer survivor, so I've been through it myself. Right. But James's approach was so inspiring that I think that it's really a formula about how we should live. Are you open to talking about your story? Yeah, of course. So how old were you when you were diagnosed? I was 39. Okay. I was 39. That was 11 years ago. Well, good for you. Thank you. Good for you. I beat 20, 20 today for me. Oh, congratulations. Yeah, thank you. I, I had my 20-year follow-up today. That's wow. Sloan Kettering. Wow. Kind of interesting. Wow. Yeah. Congratulations. It was, it was bizarre to be back there. After, I haven't been there in a very long time. It's just bizarre to be back there in general. That's a big milestone. 20, yeah. I mean, well, I'm I'm 42 now, so like to be... Uh, you know, I was 21 when I was diagnosed. So technically, a t- t- 20 years in a week. <laughs> to be, you really want to get the math nerd out of me. But I th- again, it, it just back to you know, uh, what are the commonalities? Because at 13, 39, I was 21. You're you're all in these unique life moments. Everyone is a snowflake. Mm-hmm. And you know, are you inherently born with this optimism? Do you have to channel your optimism? Are you already just too pessimistic of a son of a bitch by 40 to not even care uh it it comes down to instinct i would say inherent precociousness perhaps but what what influenced you to stay positive during your treatments well for me i mean i i am a mother as well and at that point my kids were little my son was seven and um my daughter was three when i was diagnosed and and so Having children, being a parent, is a great motivator. But I also felt like I didn't have time to—I didn't have time to lose time being depressed. Not only that, my feeling was they couldn't. Nobody could explain. They still can't explain why I got the cancer. There's no indicators. Um, but if I got cancer, anybody could. I mean, I was healthy. I lived, had a healthy lifestyle. And, and if it wasn't me, it could be somebody else. So why was I wasting time feeling down um, and, and not thinking more positively and optimistically and, and focusing on my kids and my life and, and doing whatever I could at that moment? So I, I actually don't think that I was ever depressed. I, I, when I went for treatment at MB, MD Anderson, one of the things they do when you arrive is sign you up for counseling. And I went in um, for that first session, and the counselor was really very kind. And we had a fun conversation at the end of the session. She said, you know, you can keep coming anytime. You're welcome to come anytime, but I really don't think you need this. I think you could spend your time doing other things. And I I never went back. I really didn't feel like – and I know that's not everybody's experience. Right, yes, exactly. But it certainly – was mine. I I had to focus on other but things. But you were given the option at least. I had the option. Which is important. Yeah. You need the objectivity. Yeah. 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 So, well, congratulations on 11 years. 
Thank you. Cancer free. So where did all right, so a cancer survivor writes a documentary, which by the way, the the you you've been running it along the the circuit, um, the the film festivals, you, amazing recognition, all these awards you guys have been winning. It's it's a, yeah, it's it's, a really big it's deal. Great. What is it like for you personally to be sort of back in the fold? Oh, being back in the fold is hard. Yeah, it's hard. Every time I watch this film, it's hard. It really is. It doesn't get easier. Um, going to the hospital to shoot somebody else's story is hard. Mm-hmm. I mean, my approach after I um, finished my treatment was to just move on. And I, I didn't really talk about having cancer much at all. And now, as a result of the film, I talk about it all the time. Mm-hmm. And I'm not uncomfortable talking about it, but I didn't want to be defined by it. Of course. And I, I didn't want to dwell on it. And now I realize... To make a difference, I do have to talk about it. And for this film to um, have an impact on other people's lives, I have to talk about it. So it's it's deeply personal and it, it's difficult. Jamila, would you like to weigh in on how do you manage putting together a film project like this where the perception is, oh, it's just another cancer film? Right. Well, I, I thank you for asking about that because... You know, we were really up against that that belief, like, oh, it's going to be sad. Oh, I think I've seen this before. And Geraldine and I were like, you have not seen anybody like James before. You have not. And and this is a film that I I deeply believe just anybody who has a family and loves somebody needs to see because it, it shows you a, how to love deeply. It shows you what the depth of love is really about, and um, and it's done in, in a fun way and in a graceful way, um, and so we we just persevered and and both Geraldine and I just were optimistic about everything uh, because James was, and as soon as we started trying to raise some money for it, like we did a Kickstarter campaign, it got funded in five days. We were like, what? Yeah, <laughs> you know, pretty amazing. It's like, okay, I guess people are getting it, and then um, just all of our efforts to continue to to make the film, things started to just fall into place because people wanted to be a part of it. And his community, I mean, the community of people that James touched, wanted to support this film. They all believe that he's just an unsung type of hero who deserved to have his story told well. And I feel lucky that we got to. Do, tell it and be a part of it and in a very very tender and intimate and personal way and can i add that i mean i've seen a lot of movies and i've made a lot of documentaries um this is the only movie where i've experienced sitting in a theater and this has happened at every screening again and again and again it's the only time in my life where i've sat in a theater that's full and listened to people like grown men and women and everybody in that room cry, just weep, but also laugh. There are scenes in there that really make you laugh. And when you when the film is finished, people don't get up and walk out. When the film's finished, they stay through the all of the credits, and they're so emotionally exhausted and exhilarated, and and so like people just sit there. The lights go on, and people are just sitting there, and it happens at every screening. 
and the conversations begin. And it's, I mean, it really is not like any film experience I've had before. I mean, there are movies that really profoundly move me, and I take my time walking out. But usually the theater's half empty by the time I get up and walk. In, in this case, people stay right to the end, and they just stay there. And more than once, we've had the, the theater managers come in and like kind of shout, okay, you guys, like everybody out. Like, <laughs> Closing time. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Closing hey, time. Uh, last week, we showed it in uh, Corpus Christi in James's hometown. So, of course, it was going to be a big turnout. And we had over a thousand people there. Wow! Yeah, uh, it, it it's was like a amazing. Rock concert. And, and the Q and A session just goes on and on and on. And the, the things and these are grown men, okay, grown businessmen. All, they're saying, "I am, I am running home to my family right now. I am going to go love my kids. I'm yeah. going to yeah. go be with my wife in a different way." I mean, that's then you know, like, great together with James and our vision. And, and and we we do a few things that are very creative in the film, a little bit different. Uh, people are moved to want to live a little bit differently. And then it's I go and I say to right. Geraldine, I go, I mean, we did it. That's all we really wanted to do was to try to share something new. And you've done something truly miraculous. It's Thank a really uh, the, so the the website is until twenty dot com, a documentary film chronicling the life of James Arthur Reagan from Corpus Christi. Uh, diagnosed at 13 with osteosarcoma, passed away at age of, right before 20, 19, or he was 20? He was 20. He was 20. We're talking to Geraldine Moriba and uh, Jamila Paxima, who are the uh, executive producers or? And directors. And directors and writers and award, Emmy, multi-Emmy award winning everything. We are the dumbest people <laughs> in the room right now, Mallory no, and I. No, <laughs> um, Going forward, um, you're continuing to do the screenings. Um, I know you're working with a lot of other nonprofit organizations. We'd love to work with you on possibly organizing something in the city if that works. I, I know you've been doing uh, a lot of work here. I've seen the whole spring here. You've been in Palm Beach and the European Independent Film Festival. You were in Albuquerque. I was there once. It's a decent city. <laughs> says my my hubris driven New York attitude. Uh, Ridgefield, Manhattan. We were here or, or April uh, April 21st. That's the right Saturday. That, yeah, well, that, right. We have one in Connecticut coming up this Saturday. That's a big deal. That's a big deal. So uh, we would announce right here live in the air that we want to work with you guys on a screening. Yay! Applause! Um, applause! Yeah. I'll, I'll, all right. I'll tell you what. I'll I'll give you these this applause. <laughs> I love it. Okay. You get the special Let's applause go. for that one. Um. So I could ask you the obvious. What are you hoping people take away? But just by you describing the audience is staying there. I'm I'm taken back to a feeling that we get a lot where everyone's touched by cancer in some way, and you don't really have to be a cancer survivor or a parent of a cancer patient to be reminded of life's preciousness. And that, to me, is what this film kind of reeks of in the best way. Yeah. Um, and, and again, I, I can't get my brother-in-law out of my head at this point. He was such an amazing kid. Tell us his name. His name was Carl Eric Feldman. Nice. And um, I met him, my wife and I met on a blind date in the year 2000 when I was four and a half years cancer-free. And I walked into this first date, blind date, and it's like, oh, you have a younger brother. That's great. Oh, he's dying from cancer. First date, blind date. And I'm like, all right, well, I had cancer, whatever. You know, like, it was like the horse blinders. It didn't bother me. Like, that, that kind of crazy baggage that I brought and she brought was magic. And he, he he was a good kid. He was a really good kid. He was like a Unix hacker, and he loved to. He had those the razor scooters up and down the street. He had the Mark Echo clothing and the the bag. He was just that kid. And um, 
And he, he, we obviously he died in 2003, but I'm. This is so powerful. This is such a great narrative to tell. And again, like it's not a dying pets commercial. It's not a woe is me. It's not the feed the hungry kind of donate to this to this to this. It's about how to live. Yes, get busy living. Exactly. Um, So again, the the are you guys on Twitter as well? We are. It's the name of the film. It's until um, twenty underscore film. Okay, uh, at until twenty underscore film on Twitter. So we're about out of time, but. We could probably talk about this to the end of days. This, these types of projects really excite me. There, there, we, we have a, uh, we coined a term here called the art of survivorship. And the art of survivorship is how you choose to get busy living regardless of how much time you have left on Earth. So it's very clear that you are honoring James's memory in this way without, again, pandering to the whole cancer thing. How do you feel about this? Did you ever expect it getting crowdfunded in five days and having the reception it's had? Um, do you want to go first, Jam? Oh, it's, it's so moving. I'm blown away. It's, it, was, it was a hard project to work on, I will say, but every ounce of time, energy has been completely worth it. And, um, and we see this baton that James wanted passed moving forward in so many people's lives. Every time we, we, we have a screening, 10, 10 people show up and say, I want to help host another screening. I want, this story has to be told. I got to take it to my school. I got to show it to these, you know, students at, who, are, who are studying to be nurses or oncology practices or whatever it is. And people want to share it. Geraldine just showed it to high school students. Um, Last week. We have like coaches from... Um, Division One golf yeah. teams across the United States that want to sh- use it to as a coaching tool. But we didn't envision initially that this film would be this inspiring for other people. But we see it really is a gift. I mean, and then James helped us, you know, tell this story. And um, so for that, I, I feel grateful. I'm excited because I, I. I feel like we're still at the very beginning, like the momentum has only just started. Just, a, uh, you know, a few thousands of people know about this film, and we're, we're just starting to really get the word out. So I think it, it has a long life. We're still at the, in, at the beginning of it. And, and just briefly, in, in context of projects we've worked on, I mean, I've, I've been in, um, a journalist for a long time, and, and, and I've won, fortunately, I've won a lot of awards and I've had great experiences. I mean, I've worked on elections, I've worked on war coverage, I've worked on social issues. I mean, I, I've, I'm had, I've had a good career, but there's no project I've ever worked on that is as meaningful to me personally than this one. Like, I'm asked all the time when I'm on panels or meeting young journalists and I'm mentoring, What's the most important story you've ever worked on? What's your favorite one? And I've never had an answer. I've always said the last one or the mm-hmm. current one that right. I'm working on. But today I can tell you this is it. Wow. Until 20 is definitely the most important, most special project I've ever worked on. And it's gonna, I'm going to live with it for the rest of my life. Well, I, I'm kind of speechless. <laughs> it's hard to get me to be speechless. It's, I, I can't wait to work with you guys and put something special together here in the city for this. We've been speaking with Geraldine Mariba, five-time Emmy award-winning journalist, documentary filmmaker, and uh, Jamila Paxima, and another two-time Emmy award-winning um, 
uh, independent documentary filmmaker. The, the film is Until 20, uh, the story of inspirational young adult cancer hero, James Arthur Reagan. Thank you so much thank for you. joining us. This was wonderful. Thank you. Thank you, Matt. Looking forward to meeting you. Likewise. Take care. <laughs> okay. Bye. Yay. Matt. Thank you for all you do. All right, and now it's time for our closing sequence. Prepare to activate. Uh, I hear there's rumors on the uh, internets. Have you ever seen a grown man naked? And so, to all of you, a fond farewell. Hooray, I'm helping. You are a meathead. Oh, Magoo, you've done it again. That was so terrible, I think you gave me cancer. Okay, folks, that's our show, the 385th episode of The Stupid Cancer Show. Never miss an episode by subscribing to podcast on iTunes and following us on SoundCloud. I'd like to thank our guests, Noah Bentor and Geraldine Mariba and Janela Paxima from the documentary film Until 20. Broadcasting since 2007, The Stupid Cancer Show is a production of Stupid Cancer, the largest charity comprehensively addressing juggernaut cancer worldwide, online at stupidcancer.org. Coming to you now from the chemo deck, and on behalf of my whole team here at The Stupid Cancer Show, we hope you had as much fun as we did poking a stick at Stupid Cancer. Thanks for listening, and we'll see you back here live on the next exciting podcast of The Stupid Cancer Show. Goodbye, folks. Cause cancer affects everyone, whatever the age Now imagine you're 25